Uh, well, there's not a scripture reading this morning, but this morning we will be in Isaiah 40. So if you want to go ahead and open your pew Bible to page 599, and I'm going to invite our executive pastor Paul up to share from God's word this morning. Thank you so much, Taylor. Um, I will add my welcome to his. Uh, like he said, my name is Paul Brandis, and I have the privilege of serving here as our executive pastor, um, and I have the privilege of opening God's Word with you this morning. Um, and we deeply believe that we need God's help to understand it properly. And so I'd like to invite you to join me in a word of prayer, asking for God to light our way as we uh, open Isaiah 40. Father in heaven, thank you um, for this gathering of God's people. Thank you that you have invited us into your rest May we receive that this morning, Lord, and may we receive exactly what it is that you have for each one of us out of our study of Isaiah chapter 40 this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a few things, I think, that you just really never forget. Uh, for me, one of those was the unfortunate first time that I made a Wizard of Oz joke to someone who lived in Kansas. I, I can't be the only one who's, who's done that, right? And at the time, I thought, you know, geez, what's the big deal? Lighten up. And then I moved to Kansas for college, and so now I totally get it. I am right there with you. And beyond that, I actually married someone from Kansas. So I really, really get it. They are, we are over, and I'll, I'll include myself in it, we are over the Dorothy jokes, right? I mean, again, again, it's enough. We, we get it. Dorothy is from Kansas. Our current teaching series, as you can see on the screen, which is going to carry us through the Advent season, the rest of 2018, is titled Coming Home. You all see where this is going, don't you? I mean, ever since Judy Garland uttered those iconic words, there is no place like home, there is no place like home, us Kansans were destined to hear about it from then until eternity. But I think it's worth asking this morning, is she right? Is there no place like home? And of course, every Kansan in the room is, yes, the Fog Allen Fieldhouse, KU basketball is here. Of course, there's no place like home. But we're not really talking about Kansas. That, that's not the home that is in view in this teaching series. Rather, the home that's in view in this teaching series is our ultimate home. It's the final dwelling place of God with His people when He will forever live with them again in perfect harmony. And is, is that home, is that home a place like no other? Well, this home, that home, as we've already seen in this teaching series, is one that we left. The fact that we're not there now is on us, not on God. And as we've also seen, as we've also submitted and argued during this teaching series, this home is a place unlike no other. It's a place of comfort. It's a place without fear. And yes, it's a place like no other because it is a place that belongs to a God like no other. Our ultimate home, our final destination is a place that is like no other because it belongs to a God that is like no other. This is the word of encouragement that the prophet Isaiah has for us this morning in Isaiah chapter 40, and I don't want us to miss it. Isaiah reminds us of three crucial characteristics of our God, and then he invites us to wait upon him, which he knows will be a difficult task. He knows waiting upon God is a hard challenge, and so he arms us with three beautiful reminders of just who this God, like no other, is. So will you join me in Isaiah 40 this morning to be encouraged? Will you join me in this marvelous chapter in God's Word that hopefully will speak truth and life 
to all of us as God invites us into his rest. As you turn to Isaiah 40, uh, Taylor mentioned it's on page 599 of the Pew Bibles. I want to remind us where we've been so far as we've studied this ancient book. The first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah primarily focus on God's coming judgment against his people for their rejection, their repeated and continual rejection of him. There is a pattern of rejection that God's people embody, so much so that God's judgment lines up against them. This judgment comes, you can read about it in the chapters just before Isaiah 40, this judgment comes in the form of an exile. Eventually, God allows His people to be captured and, and taken away, carted away from the land that He had promised and brought them to. But then the exile ends. God's hand of punishment is removed and the people are able and do return to the land. The judgment is finished. But as we note in Isaiah 40, the doubts still persist. The judgment is finished, but the doubts still persist. And we can relate to that, can't we? It's hard to feel close to God after a particularly difficult season. It's much easier to doubt. It's much easier to wonder. It's much harder to wait upon God. And it's into that moment that Isaiah now speaks. It's into that moment that Isaiah invites us to remember, reflect upon, and remember exactly who this God is. Will you do that with me this morning? Will you reflect upon and remember just who this God like no other is? Isaiah begins our journey in verse 12 with a series of rhetorical questions that paint an unbelievable picture of who this God is. I love the way Eugene Peterson captures his rendering in Isaiah 40. These verses read this way, verse 12. Who has scooped up the ocean in his two hands? Who has measured the sky between his thumb and little finger? Who has gone like this and measured the sky? Who has put all the earth's dirt in one of his baskets? Who has weighed each mountain and hill? These rhetorical questions are Isaiah's way of inviting his listeners into a rather ridiculous thought experiment. Essentially, he says, think of everyone you know. Think of the best people that you know. Think of those whom you admire more than anyone else those who you respect more than anyone else, those who you have looked up to for your entire life. Think about those people, get them all in your mind. And then he puts this question to you. He says, who among them have crafted or created a world that others inhabit? Have any of them held the oceans in their hands? Has any of them said that the, the sky will start here and end there? Have any of the people that you admire ever weighed the dirt of the world in a basket? No. Of course not. What's true is that all that you see, all that there is, everything that has ever come into being is because of God, because of this God. Psalm 24.1 beautifully says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And Isaiah reflects this point to us. He reminds us and he invites us to reflect upon the earth as God's masterpiece like no other. The earth is God's masterpiece like no other. This God, who he is like un any, unlike any other, he has created a masterpiece like no other. 
And this is the first crucial characteristic about this God that Isaiah wants us to remember. He believes that this will ultimately compel us to wait upon him. No one else has created a masterpiece like this earth. No one else can truthfully say that the earth and everything in it belongs to them, except for this God. I am Pei is widely recognized as one of the world's greatest architects. He is a legendary and imaginative creative. His architectural work is prolific. He was the chief architect of the glass pyramid that now stands in front of the Louvre Museum. He's responsible for the bold design of the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library and Museum. He dreamed up the Bank of China Tower, which other architects credit with transforming the Hong Kong skyline. But, but I imagine, and maybe you can imagine with me, if Isaiah was able to experience these architectural marvels, if I was able to bring him along or even just show him these images, I think he would say, Paul, these are lovely. These truly are an impressive feat of design and construction, yet, yet, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who has marked off the heavens with a span? Who else has made a mountain from nothing? Who else has made the sky simply by speaking it into being? Yes, Pei's work is stunning, and by the grace of God and for our benefit, humans have made some pretty amazing things, but there is one who is more powerful. There is one who is more imaginative. There is one whose vision is more expansive and whose abilities to enact that vision are more advanced. And this one, Isaiah would say, has created a masterpiece like no other because he made, this one made the world and everything in it. And the scope, the scale, and beauty of that accomplishment is incomparable. It's the only word for it. It's incomparable. And so it follows. The one who created the incomparable masterpiece is himself incomparable. This is the first crucial characteristic that Isaiah wants and invites us to remember. There is no one who has made a masterpiece like this. But, But that's not all. Isaiah continues in verse 14 with another crucial characteristic of this God like no other. Those verses read this way. Who could ever have told God what to do or taught him his business? What expert would he have gone to for advice? What school would he attend to learn justice? What God do you suppose might have taught him what he knows, showed him how things work? Isaiah continues with the rhetorical question. He draws out another ridiculous thought experiment by asking us to imagine who might have been God's teacher. Which school did God graduate from? Who taught him how the world works? And he's driving at an obvious answer, no one. No one's ever taught God. God's never had need for a tutor. Or or, or flip it and think about it the other way. Everything that you and I know, we were taught. Everything that you and I know, we were taught. This lesson is particularly fresh for me as a parent of young children because they don't know very much and they need to be taught everything. And at one point, wasn't that you? Wasn't that me? At one point, weren't we all uneducated and weren't we all unable to educate ourselves? 
This is common to us all except for this God like no other because he has a mind like no other. He created a masterpiece like no other and he has a mind like no other. He created a masterpiece like no other and he has a mind like no other. Infinite knowledge is his. Boundless wisdom belongs to him and him only. At his disposal is unfathomable intellect. Gravity, I know. God says, I made it. Ethics, yep, I'm the author of ethics. Biology, I've seen cells. Astronomy, I named and hung the stars. God has a mind like no other. Never a need for a teacher, never a need for a tutor. But that's not all. Isaiah continues on in verse 15 through 17 with the third crucial characteristic of this God like no other. Why? The nations are but a drop in a bucket, a mere smudge on a window. Watch him sweep up the islands like so much dust off the floor. Does anyone you have ever known have the ability to sweep up islands like dust off the kitchen floor? This God does. There aren't enough trees in Lebanon, nor enough animals in that vast forest to furnish adequate fuel and offerings for his worship. All the nations add up to simply nothing. Less than nothing is more like it, a minus. It's important to note that these verses are about comparison, not about value. They're about comparison, not about value. God isn't making a value statement here, or Isaiah isn't making a value statement here. He's making a comparative statement. If you stack up all the nations against the magnitude that is our God like no other, they do account for nothing. It's not a statement of value, it's a statement of comparison. In fact, an entire region, Lebanon, this is the point that he makes with Lebanon, this is an area that was known for its sturdy trees. It had vast forests. And and Isaiah says, in fact, you could turn all of Lebanon into firewood and it wouldn't even come close to being a burnt offering that would satisfy the size of our magnitude that is this God like no other. In comparison to God's sheer size, Isaiah argues the sum of all human accomplishment doesn't move the needle at all. God sweeps up our accomplishments like dust off the floor. These verses remind me of one of my favorite song lyrics of all time from the hymn, The Wondrous Cross. The lyric starts this way. It says, were the whole realm of nature mine. Were the whole realm of nature mine. And, and I, I sing this lyric and I'm like, all right, now we've got something to work with. Lebanon couldn't cut it, but this isn't just Lebanon. I've got the whole realm of nature at my disposal. And I submit that as an offering before this magnitude that is our God. And how does the lyric end? That were an offering far too small. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Not even the whole realm of nature can come close because this God, like no other, exists at a magnitude like no other. However you have imagined God, Isaiah suggests, it's too small. However you've tried to comprehend him, Isaiah insists, it's too narrow. Whatever box you have him in, Isaiah says, make it bigger. He's unfathomable. He's incomparable. He exists at a magnitude like no other. 
And now that he has brought us along on this journey, now that he has so poetically and beautifully reminded us of these three crucial characteristics, he puts the point to us directly, starting in verse 18. This is, this is the backdrop. These are the crucial characteristics, and then he presses the point to us. So who even comes close to being like God? Consider all that we've just rem- remembered about this God. Who even comes close? To whom or what can you compare him? Some no-God idol? Ridiculous. It's made in a workshop. It's cast in bronze. It's given a thin veneer of gold. It's draped with a silver filigree. This gets better. Or perhaps someone will select a fine wood, olive wood, say, that won't rot. Then hire a wood carver to make a no-god, giving special care to its base so that it won't tip over. The tone is incredulous in these verses, isn't it? What, you, what can you compare this god to? A no-god idol? Something made in a workshop? Pay careful mind to the base. Isaiah says, so that it doesn't tip over when you bump into it. The image that's drawn out in these verses is ridiculous, and it's supposed to be. The point of these verses is to draw out the foolishness that happens when we compare anything or anyone to our incomparable God. And the three crucial characteristics that Isaiah shared before in this chapter, that God has created a masterpiece like no other, that he has a mind like no other, and that he exists at a magnitude like no other, they serve to prove his point. Truly, Isaiah is hammering over and over, there is no one, and there is nothing like this God. But when we forget that, and I I forget that, do you? When we forget that there is no one or nothing like this God, It becomes easy to wonder. It becomes easy to question. It becomes easy to doubt. It becomes easy to say, has God forgotten me? It becomes hard to wait. Waiting is hard, isn't it? I believe it is one of the most difficult tasks that we face as humans to wait upon our God. I certainly know that it's been one of the most difficult parenting assignments, teaching our kids to wait well. And I firmly believe that if I could arm them with that skill, a skill that I'm still developing and learning within myself, if I could arm my boys with the skill to wait well, I will have given them an indispensable tool in their tool belt. Because so much of life is about waiting. Daniel Tiger certainly agrees with me. Don't sleep on Daniel Tiger. Parents in the room, right? So many songs about waiting in Daniel Tiger. When you wait, you can play, sing, or imagine anything, among many other songs about waiting. Waiting is hard, especially since God's timing is so often not our timing. We're short, he's long. And so what happens? We drift toward the familiar. We drift toward what we can see. Isn't that part of what's so hard about God? We, we drift toward idols because it's so much easier to settle. It's so much easier to trust in something that we can see, that we, we think we can comprehend. But this chapter from Isaiah is an invitation to contemplate and wait upon our unfathomable, unfathomable and incomparable God. And what's more is it's an invitation to do that when life gets most difficult. Because it is in those moments when life has pressed in upon you 
that you are going to be most tempted to trust in something that you've made and that you think you can measure. But this is the wrong move, Isaiah says, because our man-made no-gods, how good is that? Our man-made no-gods that we treat as gods, they won't be able to measure up. Every single one of them is bankrupt. That check won't cash. And they're going to leave us wanting more, but not God. Not God. He's like no other. And you see, that's where all of this heads in Isaiah 40. It's the exchange that no one saw coming. It's the twist that nobody could call. Because you, you get all this background about this God, and then there's a charge that's levied against him in verse 27. Flip there with me. We're going to jump over to the ESV. There's this charge that, I, that Israel lays at God's feet. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Verse 27 begins with a charge against God that just does not hold up against the evidence. Israel claims that God has forgotten them and that they are waiting in vain, but it just isn't true. Verse 28 continues, this is the everlasting God who never grows faint or weary and who never forgets his promises. And in fact, this never tiring God who never forgets his promises, he does not hoard this energy to himself. This is the incredible exchange that no one saw coming. This is how waiting is possible. Because this God who made a masterpiece like no other, who has a mind like no other, and who exists at a magnitude like no other, he, this very God, Isaiah says in verse 29, gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. God does not hoard his energy to himself. He gives it willingly to those who wait upon him. He doesn't hold it back. And this is how it's possible to wait because the incredible exchange where God takes our weariness and gives us his energy. I don't deserve that, do you? But it's offered to me. It's offered to you. Isaiah says, even youths, the young and the beautiful shall faint and be weary and young men and women shall fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord, those who remain faithful, those who don't throw in the towel, those who don't turn away, those who refuse to be persuaded by the critics who claim God has forgotten about you. And there is a lot of those critics. How many voices do we have? How many inputs do we have saying God has forgotten about you? But those who refuse to be persuaded by those critics, those who wait for the Lord day by day, they shall have their strength renewed. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You see, Isaiah makes a bold claim at the end of Isaiah chapter 40. He reveals the secret for when we are feeling overwhelmed, the secret for when we feel helpless, the secret when we find ourselves discouraged and despairing, the secret for when life presses in upon us is to wait on the Lord. And we're able to do so because God has given us his energy, his strength, his ability. And in fact, God has given us himself I mean, isn't that where all of this heads ultimately? We know that God has come through not just with a promise of his strength, not just with a promise, but he has come through with 
his own life. This same God, the God who created a masterpiece like no other, who has a mind like no other, and who exists at a magnitude like no other, this same God came to earth. He left his home to come to ours, and that was something brand new. And then when God became human, he submitted an invitation to you and to me, an invitation that picks up right where Isaiah left off. You see, Isaiah said that those who wait on the Lord, who keep trusting, who remain faithful, they will have their strength renewed. They will walk difficult lives and difficult paths with God's help, and they will not grow weary. And 1,500 years later, Jesus, who is the God like no other, came to earth, and he does one better than Isaiah. Because he says to all who would follow him in Matthew 11, and I need this this morning. Do you? I need this. Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come away from rush and hurry. Enter into my rest, Jesus says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I know these verses sound backwards. I know they don't sound like much of an invitation. How could a yoke be easy? How could a burden be light? But folks, all of us are yoked to something. All of us are yoked to something. All of us have submitted ourselves, we're heading in a direction, and Jesus says, hey, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, and he invites us into it, which he says, come to me, right? And go back with me just for a moment to the lyrics from the wondrous cross for a second, because I left us hanging on that. The ending of those lyrics are incredible, because the whole realm of nature, not enough, not a suitable offering, which leaves you wondering, then what is? If the whole realm of nature is not a suitable offering, what could I possibly offer this God? What does he want? And here's how the lyric concludes. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. But love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all impossibly, miraculously, God wants you. Come to me, he says. Come to the one who came to earth and gave his life for you. Come to me, he says, if you're tired and burdened and overwhelmed. Come to me and I will give you rest. Let me carry the burden. Let me do the heavy lifting. Let me leverage my unsurpassable power, my immeasurable intellect, and my sheer amazingness, all for your benefit. Let me bear the weight of it all and let me guide you in life as it's meant to be lived. Because you see, Jesus says, knowing me changes you. Jesus' invitation is to know him, and through that knowing, through that intimate knowing, we are changed. Specifically, knowing me gives you rest, for I am gentle and humble, and my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Friends, when you struggle to wait, and you will struggle to wait, don't forget the promise of Isaiah 40, and don't forget the payoff of Matthew 11. Don't forget, and in fact, be reminded of the God like who, no other, who has a home like no other, who left his home so that we might enter back into the home that is like no other because of the God like no other, don't forget 
the promises of Isaiah 40 and the payoff of Matthew 11. And may we together this Advent season wait with hope and patience and trust. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for your rest. And thank you that we get to rest together. We know, Father, that waiting um, in the biblical sense is not something that we do passively, but it's something that we participate in. There's a variety of ways to do that, Lord. We do it all by the power of your Spirit. Thank you for your Spirit. And we pray, Father, as we enter into one of those moments now, the communion table, that that our minds and hearts would be prepared for that and we would receive from it uh, what you would have for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.